0: Good morning. Uh, So I'm going to be reading from Matthew 5, 1 through 12. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Let's pray. Father God, we thank you and praise you for your word, for your presence, for the good news of the gospel of grace. Thank you that you love to bless your people. I pray, Lord, that even this morning you would bless us as we reflect on these beautiful words of our Savior, Christ Jesus. And Lord, help us to hear them, to sink down deep that we might know you better, follow you more closely, and find the way of a flourishing life by conformity to you, our risen King. Lord, I pray that your gospel would be clear to your people, despite the inadequacies of the one who delivers the message. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, before I even start the sermon, I do want to let you know, some of you might wonder, why do they still have the trees on stage? Um, Well, it's actually because this is still a Sunday of Christmas. It's Epiphany Sunday, and I know our family um, always kept lights up all the way through Epiphany, even after neighbors started taking them down. And now at our house, we just keep them up through the winter because we find it really like sad to come home to a dark house with the early evening. So until it gets light earlier, um, our lights will be shining long after everybody's have gone away. Um, but this is the Sunday where we celebrate the wise men coming to Jesus, which happened actually likely when he was between one and two years old, so not right at the Christmas story, um, to celebrate him as king and savior and to give him gifts um, according uh, to that station. So it's really appropriate that we had all of these songs reflecting on our Lord as king. But I do want to ask you this morning, how do you define the good life? How do you define the good life? Better yet, what would it take for you to be happy? You might have any number of answers to these questions. It might be family during the holidays. It might be a three-bedroom house on a white picket fence with 2.5 children, like the American dream. I imagine you want either two or three. Um, anyway. Or it might simply be health, security, freedom, comfort. Or you might be one who sees the good life as always just a little bit more than what you have now, right? A little more power, a little more money, a little more respect, a little more pleasure, a little more influence, a little more comfort, a little more of this, a little more of that. I just need a little bit more. You've been watching too many commercials. I think if we're honest, though, most of us would say that we struggle with just what the good life is. Why don't we quite have it and wonder if we'll ever truly experience it. Throughout history, um, for those of you who know me, you know I I graduated with a degree from uh, University of Maryland, College Park, in government and politics. I love political philosophy. um, But much of philosophy has been concerned with just this question. Um, how, How do we live the good life? What is the good life? How do we find happiness? At the risk of being reductionist, Aristotle, Uh, said that the good life, or flourishing life, had to do with the space to cultivate virtues, intellect, and morality, to be able to contemplate. John Stuart Mill, a 19th century philosopher, said the good life was maximizing pleasure and being free from pain. I think all of us would like that. Um, I don't know if I agree with his conception of the good life, though. Um, The words of a Diet Coke commercial from several years ago, I think, adequately capture our modern understanding of what the good life is, Um, our modern society's view of the good life, and it's very succinct, it's very brief. You do you. The good life is simply doing what you want when you want to do it, period, end of story. It's entirely determined by the individual. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is all about the good life. How to flourish as people who are citizens of God's kingdom through faith in Christ, but are living in the middle of a broken world longing to be made whole. That's what the sermon is all about. And big surprise, God's roadmap for the good life, the flourishing life, it's different from all of these philosophies I just mentioned, including the Diet Coke commercial. The Sermon on the Mount encompasses three chapters in Matthew's Gospel, and it represents the most comprehensive picture of what it looks like to follow Jesus in the entire New Testament. But it's also radical. It is almost crazy to the world when you understand it. It's surprising. It's even frustrating. And I think every single person in this room will run across something in this series that you say, wait a minute. I don't know that I believe that. I'm not entirely comfortable with that. So this is a series that is going to confront us, but also, I hope, encourage us with how to live the good life in Christ. And I hope you'll catch God's vision for what it looks like for you to flourish as God's child. Today, we'll just be looking at the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, a passage that's called the Beatitudes. It's composed of three sets of three statements about the good life. And what I hope you'll see is that as citizens of God's kingdom, we only flourish through following Jesus in lowliness, longing, and self-giving love. Lowliness, longing, and self-giving love. Looking to the opening of our passage, we find Jesus at the outset of his teaching ministry in Galilee. And he's been teaching and and going around from village to village within the northern uh, area of Galilee. And he's also healing the sick. And so crowds begin to gather around him and follow him from place to place. The crowds are one of the main characters in the gospel stories. If you had read chapter 4, you'd know that many of those following him are the sick and suffering. And it has a whole lengthy list of all of the things that are afflicting them. And they're longing for hope And healing. But what Jesus does here is he goes up on a mountainside. And just his disciples, those who were closer to him and committed to following him, more than just the 12 apostles, um, likely a larger group, they came to him and he began to teach them. And what follows are nine statements that each begin with the same phrase. Blessed are those Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who mourn, and etc. But before we even get to those different statements of content, I, we need to understand what the word blessed means. Many have looked at these beatitudes and, after contemplating them, become absolutely terrified. Um, because they think, well, what if I'm not these things? What if I'm not these things? God blesses the meek, but I'm awesome, and I know it. So how can God possibly bless me? I struggle with arrogance. You know, I don't always hunger and thirst for righteousness. Does that mean I'm not in God's kingdom? You know, we can wrongly look at these as if-then statements. You know, if, if you do this thing or if you are this way, then you get heaven or if you do this then god will bless you Uh, this idea actually led martin luther to say that the sermon on the mount displays an impossible ideal and its purpose can only be to show us how we don't measure up and so how we need grace and it does that but that's not its purpose Martin Luther was very much reacting to a works-based righteousness that characterized the Roman Catholic Church at the time. These aren't if-then statements. They're not statements of what's required to get into the kingdom. There's a long history in Scripture of this kind of phrase. They're called makarisms. It's a new word for you, makarisms. It's based on the Greek word uh, makarios. I'll just call them Beatitudes. But you find them throughout the New Testament and the Old Testament. Old Testament Hebrew uses a different word. But there, they never refer to conditions that need to be met in order for us to get God's blessing. But instead, what they do is they showcase the kind of life that truly flourishes in God's world. In fact, you could translate this word blessing as, or blessed as flourishing. Flourishing is the one who hungers and thirsts for righteousness, for they will be filled. You know, I'm indebted to Jonathan Pennington, a professor and theologian who wrote this wonderful book on the Sermon on the Mount, Uh, but he summed up what these statements do with this sentence. Jesus' macarisms, his beatitudes, they're grace-based wisdom invitations to human flourishing in God's coming kingdom. They're invitations to the good life. You know, a great example of this is Psalm 1. I love Psalm 1. It's a beautiful, it uses imagery in such a helpful way to understand um, what it looks like to be blessed by the Lord. It says, blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or uh, stand in the way that sinners take, etc." And then jumping ahead, it says, but instead, whose delight is in the law of the Lord, everything he does prospers. You have that statement, blessed is the, but it's not giving us a magical formula to get God's blessing. It's simply saying that in God's world, in God's kingdom, this this world, the way to flourish and prosper is to love his law, not to chase after sin. It's wisdom, wisdom on how to flourish in life. Similarly, these first three Beatitudes together, they make a radical statement. That the ones who flourish are not the ones brimming with self-assuredness and power, but those who are poor in spirit. Who mourn their suffering and their sin. And those who are meek and humble. That that's what characterizes the flourishing life in the world. Not everything the world values. It is an upside-down kingdom perspective on life in the world. In fact, in the Greek world where Jesus ministered, none of these things were virtues. They were the things associated with the low, not the high, not the successful. What was viewed as the good life was power, wealth, pleasure, and popularity. Um, lots of things we, we all like, right? You know, the disciples reflect this cultural perspective. In their response to Jesus when, when he says, it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When they hear this, they're shocked. They don't smile and nod. They look with open mouths and wide eyes because they associate the worldly riches and prosperity as the chief sign of God's blessing. Perhaps we're not all that different from them because they then ask, well, who then can be saved? If those who obviously have the signs of God's blessing can't be saved, then the rest are obviously hopeless. But in God's economy, to be humble and lowly and associated with the meek is the better way. Proverbs 16, 19 says, It is better to be of a humble spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. Do you believe that? You know, another theologian, uh, Herman Ritterboss, he wrote that the poor in spirit represent the socially oppressed, which is really the state of the kingdom of Israel at that time. They were living in oppression and had been transferred from other ruler to ruler to ruler to ruler. They were poor in spirit. And so this is a message of encouragement to them. He goes on to say, those who suffer from the power of injustice and are harassed by those who only consider their own advantage but yet they still remain faithful to God. That's what the poor in spirit are. The spiritual poverty called for in these first three statements is fundamentally, it's not not a matter of physical possessions as much as it is a state of the heart. To be spiritually poor is to be humble before God and others and to know the depth of our own need. It is to know that I am no better or more worthy than the most despised wretch I encounter on the street. To know that I am entirely dependent on God's provision and his mercy in Christ Jesus. It is to recognize that neither my wealth nor my privilege, pedigree, or station in the world means a darn thing to the Lord. But before him I stand equal with all others in need of his mercy." To receive from God, to flourish in life, we have to know and embrace our very great need. We have to see our poverty. If we come thinking our cups are full of righteousness and worthiness before God, if I think I'm good enough, yeah, I've lived a good life, at least one that's better than the next guy over there, is there any space for our Lord to fill us? Will we even go to him from a place of need? Jesus himself said that the healthy have no need of a doctor, but the sick. I've come to call not the righteous, or those who think they are righteous, but sinners to repentance. Those are the ones he came for. And You know, this is incredibly good news for you. If you think of yourself as too small for God too far off from his people, too sinful, too unworthy of his attentions. You are precisely the type of person he came to save and welcome home. You know, it's similar with those who mourn. There is rarely a more isolating experience than mourning a loss or a death. For each person experiences these things differently. In our culture, it pushes people To get over their grief and move on long before they're ready. It's a major failing of American culture, I believe. We don't know how to lament or sit with people in their sorrows. It's easy to feel that no one understands. Similarly with sin, it can be easy to want to move past it to diminish its significance and avoid the hard work of repentance and sorrow and grief for sin. But Jesus says, embrace mourning. Embrace lament. Experience sorrow both for sin and suffering because it is only in looking full in the face the depth of our need and our lack that we will see the true sweetness of the comfort we have in a Savior who accomplishes our forgiveness and who promises to wipe every tear from our eyes. Brothers and sisters, we will be comforted but only if we're willing to mourn. That's where we come to the second set of Beatitudes, which collectively call on us to open our eyes to injustice and look with longing to Jesus for restoration. I want to dwell for a moment on the first one. It says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. I love this statement. Because there have been times in my life that is what I have hungered and thirsted for when I see my own sin or see brokenness around me. The promise of being filled is such a great treasure. But you know, if you've been around the church for a while, you hear the word righteousness, what you'll immediately think of is moral purity and perfection. What's called a forensic righteousness or my standing before the Lord. Uh, meeting God's perfect standards, which is impossible. That's the way Paul uses the term righteousness in his letters. But the word righteousness is used other ways in Scripture as well. In the Old Testament Psalms and Proverbs, uh, with which the Beatitudes are most closely connected, righteousness actually most often refers to God's restorative justice, his restorative justice, his covenantal commitment to make all wrongs right. Right to make everything whole. His lifting up of the lowly and casting down of the proud, to reference Mary's uh, song, The Magnificat, which we looked at um, the fourth Sunday of Advent, Christmas Eve morning. It's the longing that Amos expresses. Let justice roll down like rivers and righteousness like a never-ending stream. In the, in the way Hebrew parallelism works in poetry, justice is linked with righteousness and a synonym for it. Understood this way, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, it's bigger than our own personal moral purity. This is bigger than a private experience. It is a longing that God would right the wrongs that we see, bring his kingdom to bear on the world. It is exactly what our Savior teaches us to pray in the Lord's Prayer, which we'll look at later in this series. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's that longing that Jesus says is what it looks like to flourish. But in order to long for this, we need to see. We need to open our eyes. Open our eyes to injustice around us, no matter how hard it is to accept or painful it is to see. There can be such a holy huddle mentality in the church where we like to separate ourselves from the world and only see its suffering and injustice from a distance, from a safe place. You know, hear no evil, see no evil, speak no evil. But that is not the way to flourish, according to Jesus. To long for something to be made whole, we need to let ourselves see its brokenness fully. How is this flourishing? Well, it's only when we look at the darkness and contemplate it that we can truly let light fill us with hope. It's only when we let ourselves see the sufferer and the wrongs that are done that we can be filled with longing for the perfect justice and righteousness of God's kingdom. But you know, we're not just called to long. We're called to do something about the wrong that we see. In the fourth and fifth beatitude, Jesus says that the way of flourishing is the way of mercy and purity of heart. Those who are merciful will experience mercy And those who are pure in heart will see God. Goodness, we could spend weeks just on that statement. You know, for years, I served as an elder at a church in Columbia, Maryland. And while I was there, we were part of a network of churches in our denomination, the PCA, that is focused on developing churches with a heart for ministries of mercy and reconciliation. So we'd attend these conferences periodically. I recall sitting at a table discussion at one of these conferences with a pastor who was ministering in an underserved inner-city community in the southeast of the US. I'll not mention the city to keep things anonymous. He had moved his family into a place where they were unfamiliar, and that was really hard. It was different than any of them had experienced. Uh, Before, schools were challenging. They had to be more careful due to crime. Uh, They saw suffering and sin just walking out their door on the street. Stuff that they would have never seen had they stayed away, stayed in the safe place where they were. But they felt God's call on their lives to step out into that unknown place to extend God's mercy through faithful presence. For years, though, and this is truly a worry um, that pastors can have, that um, those who follow God into hard places can have, he worried that his wife and children would resent him for the decision to go and minister in this hard and unfamiliar place. One day, after a particularly particularly difficult situation for their family, he came home um, from his work and his wife greeted him, looked him in the eye, and said, thank you. Excuse me. Thank you for the life you've given us and led us into. It hasn't been easy, but it has been good. We've seen God's goodness and mercy in it, even in the hard parts. At this table, this dear pastor broke down in tears, reflecting on these words. Because at that moment, he realized he had been fearing the wrong things his whole life in ministry. He was afraid he'd failed to give his family the good life, the best that he could offer them when in reality he had given them exactly that, by refusing the comfortable path and embracing the way of flourishing in mercy, in longing, in refusing to insulate them fully from the suffering in this world, but to respond with mercy from a place of humility. To invite his family into the life Jesus holds out and offers as good. He had shown his family what true flourishing in Christ looked like the way of blessing, the life of the kingdom. Now, you know, this is an extreme example. It was, for me, a moment that, again, affirmed a longing to be about ministry. But that's probably not the case for you. Not all of us are called to become pastors, let alone alone in such difficult circumstances. I know, for example, that I'm right where I'm supposed to be. But we are all tempted... In our own situations and contexts, to think that the way of flourishing is to keep suffering as far as possible from our eyes and our minds. But that is not the case, brothers and sisters. That is not what Jesus did for us. He entered into our mess that He might bring life to our brokenness. And it is in our weakness that we are made strong in Him. We are all invited to follow Jesus in mercy into the hard places in our families, our communities, and even in one another's lives, that we might be, as the church, characterized as a people who extend mercy, even as our Savior has extended it to us. That's where we finally come to the last thing I want to leave with you briefly and woefully inadequately. The flourishing comes from following Jesus in love. No matter the cost. That's what the last three Beatitudes are about. And rather than explore each individually, I simply want to sum them up by pointing you to the person of Christ Jesus. He says that the peacemakers and those who are persecuted and suffer for righteousness' sake are the ones who flourish, that they are the ones who are living the flourishing life, not the ones in power doing the persecuting, not the wealthy, not the comfortable. Not the ones who stay away from conflict, but the ones who dive in. Precisely, he says this precisely because that would be his own story. He would go to the cross, unjustly bearing the sin of all who trust in him and the scorn of those who reject him. He would do it as the ultimate peacemaker, making peace between us and God, not by us being great, but by his own self-sacrifice in our place for our sin. That, friends, is the good news of the gospel. That while we were God's enemies, Christ Jesus died for you, and he died for me. What's the song we sung at the men's breakfast yesterday? How deep the Father's love for us. It says, Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. And our Savior rose to new life. I know that it's finished. The flourishing life is not a call to flee the suffering that comes from following Jesus. And living boldly for him, but to embrace it as he did, knowing that the kingdom of heaven, of which we are citizens through faith in Christ, it has come in Christ, and will one day be revealed in full as it covers the earth, as the waters cover the sea. And it will be revealed, with that will be revealed our reward, the unfading crown of glory, which Jesus says is great beyond any riches in this world beyond comparison. Because our Savior has endured unjust suffering for us and in it modeled each and every one of these beatitudes, so can we. So can we. Knowing that whatever we endure in our mission of bringing peace with God through the love of Christ, God's reward is better. It's worth it. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Peacemaking never goes out of style. Turning the other cheek is never the wrong answer. Self-giving love is always the most effective apologetic for the gospel. Brothers and sisters, we are called and invited to a way of being in this world that does not make sense. It makes no rational sense It is to find a flourishing life in lowliness rather than might, through longing for what we do not see rather than seizing what we desire, and through self-giving love rather than self-protection. You know, I want to close with a prayer from the Valley of Vision. It's a collection of Puritan prayers and reflections, and this one is reflecting on the Beatitudes so poignantly. It turns the words of the Beatitudes into a prayer, and I want it to be my prayer my closing prayer for all of you. Let's pray. Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, let us learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, That to have nothing is to possess all. That to bear the cross is to wear the crown. That to give is to receive. That the valley is the place of vision. Lord, in the daytime, stars can be seen from the deepest wells. And the deeper the wells, the brighter thy stars shine. Let us find your light in our darkness. Your life in our death. Your joy in our sorrow your grace in our sin, your riches in our poverty, your glory in our valley. In Jesus' name, amen.